started as any other day. Welcome back, Mob, to another edition of Macabre Reality, true stories of everyday horror. We are back today with a main story with my main man, Matt, the council. Hello, alliteration, and hello, Matt. How are you, buddy? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, Thank you. Yeah, did I tell you, uh, I also drilled a screw into my finger. You like, didn't? It augured into my finger this week. Is it still there? Uh, no, I, I backed it out. Oh. But I had to back it out for a moment. My my finger was screwed to the uh, stand that I was working on. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> I was just reminded of that because it's on my index finger, and I use that to activate my computer, like my like my fingerprint, mm-hmm. and I can't do that. I keep pressing. I was like, shit, it won't, it won't work. Oh, I never There's a Band-Aid it. covering my finger. Fuck. Yeah. Listen out there. If you do anything biometrically, you got to have like a copy of your fingerprint? Yeah, is that going to change my fingerprint? No. So I, don't I got a screw hole in my fingerprint. How'd you get into your computer then? You have a regular password? It, well, it, you can also use a pen if uh, you can't uh, uh, do the, yeah. Yeah, that's when you need a backup. Yeah. Damn, dude. What kind of screw was it? Um, It was a deck screw, an outdoor deck screw. And like, it's the kind, it's got like these little spikes on the outside. It looks like something out of Hellraiser. Mm. And it's got, it's got counter threading. It's got these spikes on it. It's designed to really hold. It's like this gold spike. Were you tempted to like rip your finger out from under it? No, it, I was just immediately like, oh shit. Cause I, and I knew like immediately when it happened, I was like, why the fuck was I, why did I have my finger there? Cause I should have known better. Cause I was, I was holding it to keep the thing in place. I was, I was screwing a block onto a thing to Damn. a stand and it went right into it. Did it go through your nail? No, but okay. it went deep enough that I was worried it might've gotten to the bone. Oh, bone deep, bro. Bone deep. <laughs> Oh, when the bullet dude. hits the bone. Yeah, dude, when the bullet hits the bone, bro. Golly. No. I had to back it. I had to back it out of my finger. <laughs> so good thing the little trigger is where you can like where the thumb is, right on the where on the yeah, handle. Yeah, it's right it's there. Like, click, click. Where you can click it's, it. Because if you had to do it. one of these things where you had to twist it, I'd have been screwed. You'd been, <laughs> I'd had like a You were ger- already screwed. I'd have <laughs> had like a Gerald's game situation or something. You'd have been double screwed because you were already screwed. Okay. Right. <laughs> All right, awesome story, dude. Yeah, and I am blazed and blessed, so and that's Josh. how I'm doing. I'm good. Today we bring you a story of sometimes having stars in our eyes could lead to ashes in our mouths. Sometimes having stars in our eyes can lead to ashes in our mouths. That's right. I like it. Thank you. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Those were the eloquent words of John F. Kennedy in a speech he gave on September 12, 1962. Kennedy had set the mandate. America would reach the moon before the end of 1969, or we would all look very silly. The mandate inspired the nation and lit a fire under the asses of the NASA engineers whose task it would be to achieve this lofty goal. But on January 27, 1967, that fire got out from under their asses and burned up the flight crew. This is Chariot of Fire. The Apollo 1 disaster. Can we pause? Great yes. JFK impression. I could tell Thank you've been you. working on it. Thank you. I have been working on it. Can I ask you this? When he says do the other things, mm-hmm. 
I've always what the fuck does that mean? He's talking about exploring space, dude. But the other things, all the other things other than going to the moon, which is everything. Okay. He's saying we choose to go to the moon and do the, the other, other things. Thing. It's it's smart. It's politician. You got to leave some you're openings right. for other shit, you know, because NASA's got to justify their budget. Right. They're like, hey, you're just going to the moon. All right. You didn't. You didn't. You don't need all this other shit. But no, he's like, no. He said the other things. Yeah. There's other things too. Never be specific. That's rule number one in right. poli science. Give yourself some wiggle class. room. You know. Yeah. I never took political science. I'm. I lied. That's okay. Yeah. It's okay. I'll teach you. I'm sorry. The 1960s were the heyday of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. The two nations battled mostly indirectly on many fronts, including the space front. Front, 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 front. And from early on in this contest, the Soviets had the upper hand, having launched the first satellite into orbit, the first dog into orbit, the first human into orbit, and having done the first spacewalk. Oh, but not the first moonwalk. No. They didn't do the first moonwalk. That was Michael Jackson. Yeah. And, um, look, and it was spectacular. It was spectacular. That was one of the more positive things he did. Right, right. Um, there's a, it's a mixed bag with uh, Michael Jackson. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, uh, so that's, that's something a lot of people might not know now is that early on in the space race, the Soviets kept beating us to the punch every time. And so we were feeling like, shit, man, these communists, they're doing something right. So there's a lot of pressure on on our side to do to to go for the full because everyone knew what it was leading to. Oh yeah, You're going to the moon ultimately. That's what that's what the goal is going to be. So uh, JFK was just like, you know, fuck it, we're going to lay this thing right out there. Like, hey, we're going to the moon and we're going to do it before the end of the 1960s. How about that? So you got to you got to respect that. Respect it, yeah. And now I'm seeing what the other things are. It's putting a dog in space. Yeah, you got to yeah. shoot uh, dogs, monkeys, monkeys, babies, then full-grown people. You got to shoot a disc in space, so if aliens find it, mm-hmm. they know like music uh, well, and stuff. Well, like um, yeah, well, uh, like a time capsule. Yeah, time capsules on a disc, on a disc, or cool. you know, in cool. a in a suitcase or something. I don't know when that, what year they did the disc, but it wasn't. I don't think it was at the same time. But no. anyways, um, yeah. you got we got to do the other things. So this was thus was the reason for Kennedy's challenge. And it was meant to be a challenge. Uh, landing a man on the moon before the end of the 60s would be a nearly impossible uh, feat for any nation. And if the U.S. could manage to do that, they would surely beat the Soviets there. Thus was born the Apollo program, the third U.S. human spaceflight program after the Mercury and Gemini programs. Sometimes I hear it pronounced Gemini programs. Mm. Uh, conceived with the goal of landing men That's on the cricket. moon <laughs> <laughs> and returning them safely to Earth. And the Apollo 1 would be its first manned flight. So as we mentioned, this nearly (laughs) impossible challenge put a lot of pressure on NASA officials and engineers, as well as the contractors involved in the space program. And as a result, oversights and shortcuts plagued the Apollo program. Moreover, as the 1960s wore on and the deadline drew nearer, the unpopularity of the Vietnam War and the growing social unrest at home in the U.S. meant that President Lyndon Baines Johnson, or LBJ, which is Spanish for the blowjob, needed to needed NASA to deliver on Kennedy's mandate to win back popular support for his administration. That's a little known like fact. That's, that's, that's that, where his you're name You're exactly right. L, LBJ, the blowjob. I love that. The men chosen for the crew of the first mission of the Apollo program were command pilot Virgil Gus Grissom, uh, 
first American to go to space twice, Ed White, the first American to walk in space, and Roger Chaffee, the rookie who was actually a replacement for another pilot who dislocated his shoulder subsequent to being named to the crew and then had to be taken off. Who was the, one of the, the luckiest The luckiest people. shoulder dislocate, dislocations yeah. in history. Gosh. And Mr. Chaffee? Yeah. Ugh. Not so much for him. Not so much. Uh, the objective of Apollo 1 was a test flight of the Command and Service Module, or CSM, as I'll refer to it. Yeah, CSM. Forward. Um, the vehicle that would ultimately take men from the Earth to the moon. It's the little cylindrical uh, with a little bit of a cone at the end, and it's got the little rockets on it. You've seen it before. Yeah, that's the CSM? That's the CSM. Okay. Yeah, sure. I thought it was called the shuttle. I don't fucking know. No, know? Th- this is before space shuttles. They're okay. on a they're okay. on a Saturn five or Saturn four rocket uh, that that launched it launches them into outer space, and then they take the command and service module, and then they go back into orbit like they did at the end of um, Apollo thirteen, where like that that little cone part comes down mm-hmm. and they have and the they parachutes land in the water. And land in the water. Yeah, yeah, that's how they would return. Uh, but space shuttles would land like planes and they reuse them. Okay. And when they landed on the moon, uh, they had a lunar service module. Okay. Yeah. Or a limb. Okay. Yeah. Did they have to use a, um, a parking meteor? Uh, however, the oversight and design of the fly issues that were plaguing NASA and its contractor to build the CSM, the North, uh, North American aviation would be an issue throughout the preparation for the Apollo one flight. NASA had a flight simulator that was meant to mimic the working model of the CSM throughout its production so that pilots could prepare on the latest version of the craft. So you get what I'm saying there? Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. That's what they should do. Exactly. However, the changes were being made by the designers to the CSM at such a rapid pace due to design flaws being uncovered, and soon the simulator was hopelessly far behind, rendering it useless to the astronauts. And command pilot Grissom would even hang a lemon from the simulator to express his displeasure. And that's a bad idea, and that's what you shouldn't do. What is flying it when it's not up to date? Well, it, it just ma- it was it making it yeah, it was making it useless to them to yeah. prepare because it's not close to the latest model because they keep change they keep making changes, yeah. which is also concerning when you're going to go flying space in this thing. And they're constantly making design changes <laughs> to yeah. it. Yeah, I would say that's kind of concerning when you're going a million miles an hour. And this was hardly the only concern. The crew had also expressed concern about the amount of flammable material in the cabin, particularly the Velcro, in the fully pressurized, pure oxygen environment that would be created in the CSM. Materials that might not be that might not otherwise be combustible can become so, which is the case for Velcro. Well, I'm glad you said that because now it's time for, as a matter of fact, that's the facts about that. And today, the that of which I have facts for is Velcro. Are you ready to hear some Velcro? Uh, yes. I'm so excited to hear about this Velcro. Uh, Velcro is the brainchild of Georges D. Mestrel, a Swiss engineer who in 1941 went for a walk in the woods and wondered if the birds that clung to his trousers and dog could be turned into something useful. After nearly eight years of research, D. Mestrel successfully reproduced the natural attachment two strip with two strips of fabric, one with thousands of tiny hooks and the other with thousands of tiny loops. He named his invention Velcro and formally patented in 1955. The name comes from the words velvet and crochet. Isn't that interesting? Yes. And I only like to hear about Velcro if the person reading it is reading it really fucking fast. So thank you. You're welcome. Well, because, you know, 
how fast is Velcro on 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 Snap? I'm it, I'm it, reading it, does, it as it, Velcro. It, it doesn't <laughs> unsnap. That's the beautiful part. <clears throat> what do you call that? So you snap a button. Yeah. You you what do you what do you what do you do to Velcro? You stick it. Stick. You stick them. You stick a Velcro. You stick some Velcro. Yeah. You stick them together. <laughs> you mush it. You mush Velcro. Oh, we got we got more way more way more <laughs> okay this is a matter of fact that's the facts about that there's multiple facts about that um velcro was first made of cotton but he discovered that doesn't work and nylon worked better but time magazine in 1958 described the product as a zipperless zipper hmm. yeah that's good that's a good description yeah. it's also important to note that velcro nowadays is a company and not all uh, hook and loop fasteners are Velcro products. So this is like a Band-Aid situation. It's a Band-Aid situation. It's a Coke situation. It's a Ziploc situation. Mm-hmm. You know? Got it. So exactly Velcro the is the brand. So what what do you call that stuff generally? Hook, it, hook and loop fasteners? That's the thing. He called it Velcro to begin with. And so it is Velcro, but then there's knockoffs of it and different versions of it. And Velcro morphed into a company at some point and I, wait, so it's not a Band-Aid situation because it's both the name of the product, gen, like the generic name, but it's also the brand name. That's right. This might be the only case of that. But what's weird in the world, what's weird is like, I guess you can't call, if you're not the Velcro company and you make what technically is Velcro, you cannot call it Velcro. You have to call no. it something else. Well, if it's the general name for it, well, you would it was call it, the you can name. It was a general name for it in 1955. When I read this, I also was confused about that part. So that would be crazy if we have any um, like uh, legal experts tell us about that. Can you be both the general name and the brand name? And if you are, can other, I mean, wouldn't other companies also be putting that name on their product? I mean, that's yeah. the name. That's what you call it. I guess you'd have to call it. Yeah. You'd have to call it. Um, straps that stick together or uh, no you'd be calling it velcro but it'll be it'll be you know instead of velcro the the smellcrow corporate smellcrow velcro and but you'd still be calling it velcro you have to call it like velcro but spell it with a w on the end velcro Val- it's velcro <laughs> or, or you could just call it the crow or glove and use like all that branding that's already there you know, just tie it into the movies. The Crow. Oh, the Crow. And with the CRO, the Crow. With, with Brandon Lee. Yeah, he's dead. Rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Velcro got a huge Im- He got he got <laughs> Alec Baldwin. <laughs> oh god. He did. He got Baldwin. <laughs> cucumber, how you say cucumber? cucumber? How you say how you say cucumber? <laughs> uh back to Velcro. It got a huge image boost from NASA in the nineteen sixties, which is what we're talking about. When Apollo astronauts use it to secure pin, uh, pins, food packets. Yeah, and that's, that's all why the there was so much of it in the CSM is because it yeah. was a handy way of just putting your tool somewhere, just like just stick it on the wall. Yeah, and of course it went on to in every industry, taking over hooks and zippers and buttons and toggles and all this other shit. And loops and swoops. And loops and swoops. In 1968, Puma became the first major shoe company to offer a sneaker with uh, Velcro. And this is cool. In 1984, David Letterman interviewed Velcro USA's director uh, while wearing a Velcro suit. And when it was over, David Letterman launched himself into a wall, a Velcro wall with the Velcro suit on. 
oh, launching thought- that fucking craze that happened in bars and, you know, carnivals across the world later on in the early 90s. Velcro suits on Velcro wall, the fly right, thing, basically, yeah, the fly yeah. wall. Right. So David Letterman was the first person to come up with that idea and do it on TV. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Fucking genius. Yeah, man. Good for you, David. And of course. Rest, hey, rest in peace, Dave. He's, he's still alive. Oh. Yeah. Uh, rest in <laughs> retirement, Dave. Yeah, yeah, he's retired. He does have like, I guess he has like some shows on HBO. I don't know what he does now. Well, anyways, 1991, the uh, toy companies started making those mitts and balls. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. Yeah, the tennis balls that hook to the. Yeah, thing. man, we grew up with Velcro. Velcro yep. was everywhere. It's on our yep. shoes. Yep. You know what else Velcro did? It was drafted into the army in two thousand four. Let yeah it, uh, yeah they do have a lot of Velcro in their. Uniforms. But guess what? They got rid of it <laughs> because uh, for a in Afghanistan when the dust would get in between the the loops and the hooks, everything would just fall they, off. Their pants were falling off. Yeah. And when they were sneaking up on enemies and being like, all right. It makes noise. Hey, uh, get, all right. We just belly crawled. We army crawled. I guess it's just regular crawling. We just crawled two miles, two clicks. We us crawled. We <laughs> us crawled two clicks north. We're right there. Here, there's enemies right there. Get that grenade out of your pocket. Okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So they went back to buttons. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you before you got into that is, is it acceptable for like near you to buy shoes that are Velcro shoes now at, at this stage in our lives? Uh, I would say to you, do you give a shit if people see you wearing Velcro shoes? Um, not necessarily. Well, then I would want to see it. like, but do they have Velcro shoes oh, for men? Yeah, of course they do. <laughs> Do they have those little things that light up on the heel? Yeah, I'm sure they do. <laughs> like those BK lights? I'm sure they do. Absolutely they do. Um, Hell. Okay. Well, I know what I'm doing later today. Your favorite shoe company for sure shopping. <laughs> sells Velcro shoes for men. I guarantee it. It might be the ugliest shoe you've ever fucking seen or they ever no, made. It'll be but. awesome. <laughs> uh, that was it for, as a matter of fact, that's the facts about that. Back to you, Matt. Thus, despite the CSM getting the okay from the engineers, the crew's concerns were not exactly alleviated. To illustrate this point, they even gave the design officer of the CSM, Joseph Shea, a portrait of themselves, heads bowed and hands clasped in prayer, around a miniature of the CSM with the inscription, quote, It isn't that we don't trust you, Joe, but this time we've decided to go over your head. End quote. Mm. So, in you look at that picture now, uh, it's kind of eerie. Yeah. Yeah. The mission was scheduled to fly on February 27, 1967. However, as an integral part of the preparation for flight, astronauts would go through numerous flight rehearsals in the weeks leading up to their launch. One such rehearsal was the plugs out test where the engineers are seeking to determine if the spacecraft can operate under its own power. Thus all plugs connecting it to the ground would be removed. Moreover, the astronauts would be fully suited up and the cabin uh, fully pressurized with pure oxygen, which is part of simulating the launch procedure. However, the plugs out test was not considered dangerous as it had been performed many times before in the Mercury and Gemini programs (laughs) without issue. And because neither the rocket nor the CSM were loaded with fuel or cryogenics and the prior, the pyrotechnic systems, uh, which are the explosive bolts uh, were disabled. This lack of appreciation for the inherent danger involved in the test would soon prove fatal. 
Yeah. First of all, I've been watching wrestling since the 80s. I know what pyrotechnics is, bud. Right. Um, second of all, pure, uncut oxygen just running through the place. Yeah. 100%. Mm. That's what they were pressurizing the cabin with. The mm. idea was to make it like they were in space. I mean, <clears throat> as they should. That's a good idea. Yeah. But so they're trying to reach. And so the cabin's internally pressurized. In space, like there's no external pressure. You're in a vacuum. So all the pressure is internal. So they're raising the PSI inside the um, the CSM. <laughs> but uh, what they didn't account for okay. is that they're at. It said there was there was already because they're not in space. There's already there is outside pressure because they're at sea level, and they didn't account for that. And so they actually raised the pressure pretty high, and that led to some consequences. We'll get into. Oh no! But that's not that's not what caused the the, the incident, but it didn't help. Mm-hmm. As we'll get into. Okay. It was on January 27th, 1967. And you know what was going on in the world? Like, you know the the you know much about pop culture from that time? Yeah, the Beatles, the Beatles are Beatles are around. Yeah. Um, I think Mad Men. Like I mean, the Mad show was was much later, but yeah, like yeah. that time, like that era. Don Draper. Yeah. Vietnam War. Um, let's see, sixty seven. The crew were fully suited and seated in the cabin, facing upwards, with the hatch closed. However, the test was being delayed by communications issues between the cabin and mission control, much to the chagrin of the astronauts, who still had an emergency evacuation practice to perform after the plugs-out test. Grissom was heard to remark, How are we going to get to the moon if we can't talk between two or three buildings? He's absolutely right. Not long after this remark, at 6.31 p.m., through the static and faulty communications, the ground crew heard one of the astronauts shout of the intercom, Flames! We got fire in the cockpit! Mission Control, located about half a kilometer away, was initially uncertain if they had heard correctly. However, they quickly saw through their monitors, which were trained on the hatch window, Ed White reaching for the hatch release handle as flames filled the cockpit. Unfortunately, as we will get to later, it was physically impossible to open the hatch under the circumstances. The crew that were up on the tower, just outside the CSM, immediately scrambled to action. Seconds later, another voice shouted, There's a bad fire! And, I'm burning up! Ah! Yeah. Pretty, yeah. And we're going to play that. Yeah. Play the audio right and now. Go. And we're back. Hey, Evil Knievel jumped 16 cars in a row in 1967. Did he really? He did. And Elvis married Priscilla. Mm. 1967. And Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump, uh, he did something in 1967. Then the intensity of the fire, fed by pure oxygen, caused the pressure inside the cabin to increase so much that it ruptured the hole. The the hole. The hole. Not the hole. hole. I got excited (laughs) for a second. The the hull, when the hull ruptured, a wave of flame burst from the craft, throwing one of the grounds crew clear. Flame and smoke engulfed the CSM and prevented the grounds crew from attempting a rescue. Their efforts were further hindered by the fact that their emergency equipment, including gas masks, were for dealing with toxic fumes and not a fire. So, I mean, they're yeah. dealing with pure oxygen, and yet they're not prepared for a fire. Uh, with the hull ruptured, 
A rush of air caused the flames to quickly spread throughout the cabin, aided by the abundance of flammable material inside. Finally, when the pure oxygen was consumed and replaced with normal atmospheric air, the fire went out, but a high concentration of carbon monoxide and smoke then filled the cabin and covered everything with soot. Damn, dude. Like, okay, so again, just, 1967. Yeah, they weren't prepared for a fire. Well, I mean, it's not because of the time period. It's like it was stupid for them not to be because they're dealing with pure oxygen, mm-hmm. which is um, highly flammable. And these are very smart people. They, they're supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, man. Imagine being in the in the uh, command center and seeing that through the window, though. That's yeah, tough. They like they could see his arm like through the hatch window trying to open the thing, um, and they could see flames all around his all around his uh, arm. That's fucked up. That'd dude. be a crazy. That'd be crazy picture. You probably would never forget that. No. Yeah. Damn. No. But there was no way, and we'll get to it. There's no way he'd be able to open that the hatch. Um. So five minutes after the first report of a fire in the cockpit, grounds crew were able to open the hatches, but Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee had already perished. According to the findings of the subsequent investigation conducted by NASA itself, which is, that's nice whenever you get to do an investigation into yourself, um, Grissom suffered severe third-degree burns over a third of his body, White suffered third-degree burns on almost half of his body, and Chaffee uh, third-degree burns on almost a quarter of his body. However, it was determined that the astronauts did not burn to death, but rather died of asphyxia-induced cardiac arrest as a result of exposure to the toxic atmosphere inside the cabin once their spacesuits, oxygen tubes, were burned away. Damn, man. But you heard that audio. Yeah. They were definitely burning up for a little bit there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the, and it would have been incredibly hot. I'm wondering inside. about I'm wondering about the suits. Like, what about them? The suits, how, the suits were burned and melted away to, yeah, okay. to, to about the same amount that they their bodies were. So mostly, so uh, Grissom got it worse. Ed medium, Chaffee the least, but you know mm-hmm. they're all third degree burns. Yeah, I was wondering how like fire resistant the suits are. Not obviously not that not. much. Yeah, and they so their oxygen tubes. So they had the, you know their own oxygen connections, but the fire burned through that. And so inside the module, it was the atmosphere was, I mean, there's no oxygen. It was just carbon monoxide and, and whatnot. So I mean, do you think the fire it, got it asphyxiated? In, do you think the fire got into the tubes and shot into their mouths? Maybe they might've been breathing Whoa, fire. Dude. Reverse dragon fire. Bre- yeah. Yes. <laughs> they got the reverse dragon. They were getting shotgun by, <laughs> by the CSM. Now that's fire. It was estimated that the atmosphere inside the CSM was lethal five seconds after the fire went out due to the ruptured hull. Um, hull or hole? Uh, hull. Okay. okay. Hull. Okay. You keep hull. You keep riding the line there. I, I know. I know. But, I mean, I think it's fine for them to sound the same. You just got to... I mean, you can't rupture a hole. There's nothing to rupture. The, the, hole, Excuse me? the, the hole is the rupture. <laughs> Oh, buddy, you could rupture a hole, my friend. I think we both know that. Um, <laughs> we've done this podcast for over a year now. I think we both know that we could rupture a hole. Uh, all right. Well, the ruptured hole. Oh, hole, hole, uh, hole, hole. Let's be professional here. Keep it professional. All right. I am the seed of destruction. Seed one. Pure oxygen environment. 
Although North Americans suggested using an oxygen-nitrogen mixture during the early design phases of the Apollo command module, NASA did not want to risk a reputation of a prior incident in which uh, McDonnell Aircraft test pilot G.B. North lost consciousness and sustained serious injuries while testing a mercury atmosphere system in a vacuum chamber on April 21st, 1960. And this was in McDonald's, you said? Uh, McDonnell Aircraft test pilot. McDonald being a base, maybe? Oh, okay. Maybe okay. It's an okay. I don't okay. fucking know. Sorry. I'm not fucking... I thought we were talking about hamburgers. You know what? Chicken. All right, hold on. Uh, in that case, the problem was found to be nitrogen-rich and therefore oxygen-poor air leaking from the cabin into the spacesuit feed, blah, blah, blah. So anyways, they'd had a poor... They'd had a previous negative incident using an oxygen-nitrogen mixture before. So that's why they stuck with pure oxygen. Well, However, even the, God. <laughs> even the so yeah, <laughs> a guy passed out. They're like, no, I want fuck that. <laughs> oh Jesus, fuck that. We can't have that anymore. We don't want that ever. If he's gonna pass out, he might as well die. Like fuck we this. might we as well. We could have roasted three astronauts for that. Um, <laughs> so, anyways, that's why they stuck with the oxygen. They switched, I think, thereafter to a mixture because even the Soviets were using a mixture at this point because they had had some kind of incident with the pure oxygen because it's just inherently very dangerous. Yeah. But a pure oxygen atmosphere presented several advantages. Um, first of all, life support systems were simpler. Uh, it employed lower pressure, allowing a thinner, lighter design. I am the seed of destruction. C2, ignition source. So what the later investigation found was that it was an exposed wire created an arc inside the um, CSM. And that's what ignited the pure oxygen atmosphere. That'll do it. That'll so do it. Apparently one of these, it was covered in like a mesh, like, you know, some wires are. And mm. apparently it was in a position where every time they opened the hatch, it was scraping it <gasps> until ultimately it, it was a pure exposed wire. And it created, and at some point it created an arc. No fucking way. And that's what ignited. Uh, so something that wore down after, time after time of opening the hatch caused them to fucking burn to death. Yes. Good lord. I am the seed of destruction. C3 hatch design. Speaking of hatch, wow. The hatch itself was designed to open inward. So when I said that it was impossible for Ed White to open the door cuz the the pressure inside the hole is way higher than it is outside. And he has to open it inward, which is going to be impossible. Yeah. Whereas um, if he could have just turned the handle, it would have popped outward. open probably. Well, they used to have an explosive hatch, which is one that they, they press a button and it, it fires off of that, like with pyrotechnics. Oh. Um, and if they had that, they would have been able to get out quick. But they had had an incident where they believe, they're not even sure, and I think it involved Gus Grissom, they're not even sure that it, but they think that the hatch had, explo- had blown off without like, you know, accidentally, like mm-hmm. without anybody pressing anything, which obviously if that happened in space, that's going to be a catastrophe. Yeah, so it made done. them nervous about those kinds of hatches. And so they created this kind and it opened inward again, I guess the idea to make it very secure, but in a situation where you want to open the hatch, which they weren't, pers- they, again, they're thinking about it being outer space. They're not at all considering that something could happen on the ground like this. They just completely, in fact, one of the guys who testified in Congress after the incident uh, said like it was a, the failure here was a failure of imagination. The failure to imagine what could happen. People talk so cool back then, dude. Yeah. That's yeah. good. I am 
And then seed four, combustible materials, which we've talked about. Uh, this is just uh, didn't lo- lead to the disaster, but it made it worse. Uh, all that Velcro, Velcro in particular, um, just lit up, and it just turned. It just it just made the whole thing uh, go up a lot quicker. Man, and it was because of the oxygen too, right? Because yeah, I'm pretty sure nylon is flammable. It's not well at. Uh, it, normally it's not particularly flammable, okay. like in at normal atmospheric conditions, but if you put it in pure oxygen, it becomes like it'll, it's combustible. Hmm. Yeah. Well, damn. Which is crazy to think about, like just yeah. put, just having a pure oxygen situation, things that are not normally like that flammable or combustible become so. Yeah. Yeah. Including people. Yeah. Okay, so aftermath. Um, yeah, Slim Shady. Yeah, there's some aftermath to talk about. Uh, the design of space suit was modified. Uh, materials changed to, to a non-flammable cloth, which was a good idea. Uh, flammable <laughs> materials in the cabin were replaced with self-extinguishing versions, um, and they modified the hatch to open uh, towards the outside, which was also smart. Uh, most pro- most people who had been connected with the space cro- program. Um, we're caught by surprise. <laughs> I'm just reading my notes. Now. <laughs> this is a this is a section called just notes. <laughs> this is just my notes. Notes read just uh, after I get <laughs> nonchalant, after, after, or done, whatever. Um, this is this segment is called lackluster notes. <laughs> this segment is called just some random shit I wrote down. Um, so here's a quote for you. Get milk. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so here's a quote uh, from Deke Slayton, one of the original seven Mercury astronauts who was a director of flight operations for the for Apollo. Quote, we may have never gotten to the moon if it hadn't been for Apollo 1. We uncovered a whole barrel of snakes that would have given us problems later on. Well, good thing that he compared three dead bodies to a barrel of snakes. And that's, that was Deke. We found Deke a whole barrel. Deke. We found a whole barrel of dead bodies in there. God. I mean, snake. That's say snakes are dead bodies. I, I always get. Snakes, I always. <laughs> I always get too confused. <laughs> like the other day, I was yeah. out walking in the woods, and I got bit by a dead <laughs> by a dead body. Well, you know, Deke. That's that was a snake, bud. Um, what a thing to say. So Apollo Seven ex- exorcised like like exorcism, like what a priest does. Yeah, Apollo Seven exorcised the disaster. I don't. I guess they went into space, and then Apollo Eleven put the first men on the moon before so them Soviets. A- before. And you know, so they they responded well to this tragedy. They learned from their mistake. They found that whole barrel of snakes. They did, and they got rid and of them. And they got rid of them snakes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then they did find a few more <laughs> snakes on Apollo 13, but they got them Uh-oh. back. The only people who died in the Apollo program were these three in the Apollo 1 fire. After the accident, NASA flight director Gene Krantz, that's Ed uh, Harris's character in Apollo 13. You remember the movie? Okay. In the white vest? Mm-hmm called a meeting of his staff in mission i guess that's mission control okay delivering an inspiring speech that was later reprised in the wake of the columbia accident quote from this day forward flight control will be known by two words 
tough and confident. Oh, okay. I thought he was going to say tough titties. <laughs> tough means we are forever accountable for what we do or what we fail to do. We will never again compromise our responsibilities. Competent means we will never take anything for granted. Mission control will be perfect. When you leave this meeting today, you go to your office, and the first thing you will do there is write tough and competent on your blackboards. It will never... (laughs) (laughs) That's what he said. This is a long speech, sir. (laughs) It took a turn I didn't expect. You tough and confident. I'm like, this is inspiring. He's like, go back to your classrooms. <laughs> write it on your blackboard. 50 times, you're in trouble. You're on punishment. You write it until you spell it right like Lisa Simpson. Or Bart Simpson, actually. <laughs> From the beginning of the goddamn Simpson. It will never be erased. Each day when you enter the room, each day when you enter the room, these words will remind you of the price paid for Grissom White Chapel. These words are the price of admission to the ranks of mission control.